This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. One loyal fan. This is episode 40. In this episode, I will tell the story of the first known person to legitimately walk around the world along with three other attempts. During the very late 1800s, people from various countries started to attempt to walk around the world for attention, money, and fame. In episode 39, I shared stories of several fakes who took advantage of the American public by traveling around the Midwest United States claiming to be on treks around the world, but making little or no effort to actually leave the states. However, others at that time made more sincere attempts and successfully did extend walking on multiple continents accompanied by newspaper stories confirming their presence in different countries. Several walkers were well-educated and certainly not the typical tramps and drunks that were highlighted in episode 39. Some of the individuals covered in this episode became famous as explorers and were given credit for conducting valid walks around the world. But did they actually do it? What was their motivation for spending months and years in this activity? What did they do with their lives after their walk? Here are four intriguing stories of individuals who became very famous. They were a Russian, a Frenchman, and two Americans. Konstantin Rengarten was born in the Baltics. He became a shipboy and was an athlete in high school. He was fond of traveling and at an early age went to Western Europe, Asia, and Africa. He longed to walk around the world and spent 10 years preparing for the journey. When Garten started a walk around the world west to east from Riga, Russia, the capital of present-day Latvia, in 1894. He was highly educated and represented 10 German newspapers, five that were published in Russia. He spoke several languages and expected to walk for three years. In his backpack, he carried climbing equipment, woolen underwear, a camel wrap, a gun, a large hunting knife, a cooking pot, and a small supply of food. More than a year later, he arrived in Ubekistan, about 4,000 miles to the east. His pace was about 10 miles per day average. It was reported, Rengarten wears only woolen clothes, and for the most part adopts the footwear used in the countries through which he passes. During the whole journey, he has not once had to call in the advice of a doctor, but he has lost a good deal of weight. During Rengarten's walk through Persia, or Iran, he observed terrible conditions and he found their customs abominable. He said, All women and girls from 10 years up are absolute slaves, while the male part are lazy, filthy, vile barbarians. The Persian prisons are veritable hells where the government takes no responsibility except to incarcerate the victims. His pace through Persia was faster, where he walked 1,100 miles in 70 days, or about 110 miles per week. He had spent several nights sleeping in sheds and stables. People thought he was a doctor and came to him to treat eye pains or burns. While traveling through East Russia, he observed that the arrival of the railroad was having dire effects. The people's lives were not improving with modern innovations. Instead, they were falling prey to drunkenness. From eastern Siberia, he entered Mongolia and set out across the Gobi Desert. He spent 36 days crossing it and was struck by its size. 
The nomads were very hospitable to him. He reached northern China, where he found many Russian merchants, and then went on to Beijing. During his travels through various countries, at times he was jeered and insulted for his foreign habits and costume. He was particularly critical of Japan, that published many articles about him in their press. He felt that he was treated with contempt, and said that he was followed by secret police as he walked. After more than two and a half years, Rengarten arrived in Seattle, Washington on a steamer from Japan. He claimed that he had walked more than 9,000 miles, averaging about 290 miles per month. For his walking days, he estimated he covered about 25 miles per day. He preferred walking on wagon roads rather than railroad tracks and headed south through Oregon to California. Rengarten enjoyed walking in the United States and had high praise for the people of America who he said treated him nobly. Rengarten arrived in San Francisco, California in 1897 after being on the road for a total of more than three years. On his journey up Market Street, he was followed by a curious throng of men and small boys, all interested to know the identity of the dusty and ragged stranger attired in a much worn and weathered beaten suit. Ringarten walked the railroad to the east, stepping off the track when trains appeared. At Illinois, it was observed, He is not one of the ordinary globetrotters, but writes stories of his journeys. He makes copious notes. He has walked a fraction over 13,000 miles and traveled over 4,000 miles on steamships. The German people who have conversed with him say he is one of the most intelligent men they have talked with in years. He says there is so much sameness to the scenery between the mountains and the Mississippi, one big farm after another. From New York City, Ringarten steamed to France, where he was welcomed as a famous traveler. He walked through France, visited Paris, and was welcomed at many cities. Through Germany, he lectured at various cities. On September 27, 1898, Ringarten returned to a starting point in Riga after a little more than four years on his walk. A triumphal arch of flowers was built for him to pass through. Everywhere were smiling faces with bouquets of flowers in their hands. He became very famous. The streets of Riga were unusually lively. Cries of cheers sounded. Rejoicing reigned. So Riga met its resident Konstantin Ringarten, completing his trip around the world. He was awarded the title of Honorary Citizen of Riga. He estimated that he had walked 16,700 miles in four years, one month, and 12 days. After his journey, a report of his travels was published in several countries, and he gave several hundred lectures in Russia and Germany. Rengarten died in 1906 in Russia from pneumonia at age 42. Did Rengarten really do it? His timeline and route was very believable. Anyone who claimed to do it solo is highly suspect, but some accounts mentioned that he had a servant with him at times. His reports back to newspapers were many, and no reports were found doubting the authenticity of his walk. He never changed his story along the way. I have concluded that this was a legitimate effort, perhaps the first true walk around the world. Henry Gilbert, a journalist, was born in France in 1865. In 1895, at the age of 30, he started his west-to-east walk around the world from Paris on a wager of 10,000 pounds between six wealthy friends. He also hoped to publish a book about his adventures. 
He started without money, but was allowed to contract work and accept room and board. He was required to finish in five and a half years and cover a route of 41,500 miles. Not many details were found about his first few years when he claimed to cross Spain, the Middle East, and India. In Syria, he was captured by a band of Turks who asked him if he was a Christian. They let him go once they learned he was a Frenchman. While Gilbert didn't speak all the languages, he said he was a great believer in the power of mimicry, and by using a few signs, he generally succeeded in getting what he wanted. Gilbert's most famous experience occurred in India after nearly the three-year mark. Near a village, he met a tourist who let him borrow his bicycle for an hour's ride. He rode in two open fields and later stopped for a rest under a wild banana tree by a pool of water. He then heard a sound that paralyzed him with fear. My gaze rested upon the fierce and wicked head and long-striped body of an immense tiger about thirty yards from me. He at first remained still and then hid as the tiger lapped up some water. But then it started to creep in Gilbert's direction. Leaping to my feet, I hurled myself in the direction of the bicycle. He then started riding away fast for dear life. The tiger ran and leaped after him and came within six yards on a leap. The sixth leap almost brought the claws of the monster within striking distance of my back tire, but I pedaled away desperately. As he made a turn onto another road, a tree was lying across the path with the tiger still coming. I charged the obstacle headlong, and just before crashing into it, I leaped from the machine and scrambled over. He got back on the bike, pedaled on as the tiger leaped over the fallen tree. Thankfully, the beast soon gave up the chase, and Gilbert made his way back to the town, utterly exhausted and shaking. After three years on the road. Gilbert arrived in Australia, where he would trek for several years and kept a detailed journal. In August 1897, he started a journey of more than 1,500 miles across southern Australia, following a telegraph line. He had a rough start. On his second morning, he discovered that he had been drugged by chloroform, and all his possessions, except his clothes, had been stolen, causing him to return to his starting point at Albany for a month. Then two months later, after wandering 14 days in the bush, suffering from hunger and exposure, he arrived at an outpost in a state of collapse. He returned again to Albany for medical treatment. Six months later, Gilbert arrived in Adelaide, Australia, and received a grand welcome from a large crowd. Thousands of people followed him along King William Street to the post office, where he was heartily cheered. He said he had been walking for more than three years and had traveled a total of 23,220 miles. He next planned to walk another 1,500 miles to Brisbane through Melbourne. He still claimed that he never took rides. He must avoid, as with the plague, any friendly coach or carrier who might help him over a hard pinch in his track. Gilbert arrived in Melbourne after the four-year mark. He walks gingerly, being evidently footsore. He wears a khaki suit with a wide-brimmed pith hat and carries with him a staff. While on his left arm are the colors of his beloved France. He generally travels along the railroad line, which is harder walking than on the road, but prevents him from missing his way and thus losing time and adding to the distance he would have to travel. 
In December 1898, Gilbert arrived in Brisbane. He intended to take a ship to China within a few days, but did not. More than a year and a half later, in 1900, he was still in Australia. He married Marie Barrett, who walked with him for many more miles in Australia. They had a daughter in 1901. Gilbert and his family eventually sailed for Hong Kong. Gilbert became seriously sick at Hong Kong and was hospitalized for a month. His family stayed at an Italian convent. The French consul wouldn't allow him to travel through China, so they went to Vietnam, which was a French colony, and he tried to give lectures. But they caught diseases there, and he was again hospitalized. Their daughter died when only eight months old in 1902. Gilbert's walk continued on by 1904, but at Port Said, Egypt, on the Suez Canal, Gilbert deserted his wife. Gilbert also had deserted another wife before leaving France. It is unknown where Gilbert went from there. He never returned to his original French family. He may have joined the French military during World War I. Obviously, he never actually walked all the way around the world, but certainly did walk thousands of miles in Australia. George Schilling was from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Some writers have recognized Schilling as being the first to walk around the world. At the age of nine, his left arm was ripped off by some belting while playing in an axe factory. He went on to be an athlete and a daredevil. In 1895, Schilling started ultra-distance walks with a 407-mile walk from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to New York City in only nine days. He wasn't shy about boasting of his accomplishments. During his walks, he wore medals won in athletic contests. On April 20, 1896, Schilling started a walk from Pittsburgh to San Francisco and back with his St. Bernard named King on a wager from an athletic club. He was required to cover 7,500 miles in 10 months, leave without a cent, and return with $1,000. Near the beginning of his journey, his dog became footsore and exhausted, laid down and died. In Ohio, he was given another dog, a foxhound, which he named King too. King's sore feet limited Schilling's pace. Schilling walked mostly on the railroad and carried letters to prove that he was a pedestrian and not a railroad hobo. After Wyoming, news coverage halted, but in August 1896, after a total of four months, it was reported that he had arrived in San Francisco only 26 hours ahead of his planned schedule. Schilling announced that his return trip would start in Portland, Oregon. He returned to Pittsburgh in six months, just two days under the 10-month total, accomplishing his planned timeline. A large crowd collected around the office and cheered the plucky walker and his trim-looking dog. Schilling looks in splendid shape and appears much bigger and stronger and certainly more tanned than he did nearly a year ago. He said he would never undertake such a long walk again. Within a few months, Schilling was calling himself the world's champion long-distance walker and was selling a book about the history of his life and adventures. A New York newspaper was skeptical and commented, This book makes Schelling a greater discoverer of lands and peoples than the late Christopher Columbus. In 
1897, Schilling announced plans to walk around the world in four years, hoping to visit the World's Exposition in Paris in 1900 along the way. He would also take his dog again. On August 3rd, 1897, Schilling left New York City and started his attempt with his foxhound, King Two, on an alleged wager of $5,000. He was required to leave without a cent in his pocket and not allowed to beg, borrow, or spend along the way. After those four years, he needed to return with $5,000 cash in his pocket. After a month, Schilling arrived in Detroit on a pace of about 20 miles per day. The press was skeptical of him. Schilling has conspicuously placed on his blue sweater this announcement, walking round the world, while Champion Walker attracts attention on his cap. In his knapsack, he carried copies of his book that he was selling. After six months, Schilling arrived in San Francisco. He had taken a southern route. I crossed the Mojave Desert without much trouble, the only objectionable feature being a hard sandstorm which made my eyes sore and nearly killed the dog. Schilling searched for free passage on a ship to Australia. He was also willing to work his way on a ship. He couldn't find passage on a steamer that would allow his dog, knowing it probably wouldn't be allowed to enter Australia. So he walked, quote, every inch north to Seattle, Washington, and then to Vancouver, Canada, where he hired on a sailing ship that allowed King to come. Seven months later, it was reported that Schilling was in Sydney, Australia. The ship had sailed slowly for 82 days. He wrote, On arriving here, my dog King was taken away from me, as they do not allow dogs to land in Australia. He was taken by quarantine officers who nearly destroyed him before I was able to secure bonds. It is likely he will fret and die in distress. Schilling's round-the-world walk shifted from a point-to-point -point walk circling the globe to a walking tour of various countries. He prepared to walk 650 miles from Sydney to Melbourne. The country people are very good. In the miles I walked from Sydney, I never passed a night without a good bed and plenty to eat. At one point, he walked 15 miles with Aborigines who carried spears and boomerangs. He watched as they threw one and killed a flying bird overhead. After Melbourne, no letters from Schilling reached home for a long time, and many believed he was dead. Fifteen months passed, and a letter finally arrived. In February 1900, Schilling was still in Australia after a year and a half there. He claimed that he had walked more than 9,000 miles through nearly all of Australia. He had also visited Tasmania and New Zealand, where he claimed to walk an unlikely 2,000 miles in four months. That is walking an extremely difficult and unrealistic 610 miles per month for 18 months straight. Returning to Australia in July 1899, he was able to be reunited with his dog King. A year later, in August 1900, three years into his journey, Schilling arrived in Sri Lanka and crossed India northward to Bombay where his dog King died in an accident. Schilling next sailed to Singapore and Hong Kong where he arrived in 1901. He claimed that due to wars in various regions that his wagerers granted him an additional year for his trek. 
Xiling said he sailed to Shanghai and hoped to walk through China, but could not because of the Boxer Uprising. So instead, he went over to Japan in June 1901 and walked there. He next then went on to the Philippines and Indonesia, and then was said to be in South Africa by the end of the year. Communications about Schilling ceased totally for nearly the next three years, but in January 1904, he showed up in Monte Carlo, Monaco. He told people that his wager term had always been to complete his walk within seven years instead of the original four years, and he planned to be back in New York by August 1904. But in August, Schilling instead arrived in Berlin, Germany, where he became sick and stopped for two months. Schilling explained what had happened during the past three years. He said he had great difficulty walking through Africa and eventually was arrested by the Turks, who didn't believe his story. He reached London in November 1904 and then gave many lectures throughout the country in no hurry. Now in his eighth year, while there he met and married a girl in Hull, England. He never returned to Pittsburgh that year. Instead, he became a serious self-promoter, continuing to do stunts and boasted that he was the first man who had ever walked around the world, even though he had not. As proof, Schilling presented his collection of 4,000 village seals and stamps that filled 28 books. I collected two trunks of curios, but one I lost, and the other fell in the Zambezi River in Africa, and the contents were ruined. Six years later, in 1911, the gullible public believed a crazy stunt Schilling was said to be performing. Schilling has undertaken the gigantic task of rolling a large globe around the world and also living and sleeping in it. The globe is seven feet in diameter and 22 feet in girth. This is his second attempt to accomplish his long journey. The first time he had the misfortune of losing an arm in China during the Boxer Rebellion. It is funny how stories change. See the article on ultrarunninghistory.com to see a picture of his globe. Two years later, he claimed that he had pushed it 10,000 miles. He did not. Schilling finally returned to Pittsburgh in 1914 and died on May 9, 1920, at the age of 45. His tombstone read, "The renowned pedestrian who walked around the world 1897 to 1905." Did Schilling truly walk around the world as his tombstone states? No. Some writers have mistakenly written that George M. Schilling was by far the most successful of the early would-be globetrotters. Instead, that credit should probably go to Constantine Rengarten. George Melville Boynton was a famous explorer during the early 1900s, but those who have written about him say he was a braggart and a swindler. Whose larger-than-life public persona was developed through relentless self-promotion, and whose money-making schemes straddled the line between hopelessly naive and outright fraud. During his early adventure career, he attempted to walk around the world. Because of his fame, his story must be told to set the record straight. Boynton was born in New Hampshire in 1869. He was well educated in public and private schools. At the age of 20, after a serious argument with his father, Boynton left home to never return. He falsely claimed that he went off to South America for a number of years, soldiering in various battles. Immigration records show that he actually went to London and then to Australia in 1889. 
1897, Boynton had returned to America and claimed that he was living in San Francisco as the Around the World frenzy was taking place. Boynton joined the craze, and the main source for his story were his own words. On August 18, 1897, he asserted that he accepted a $50,000 wager to walk around the world in five years with the usual suspect conditions to spend no money and sponge off the generosity of others. Like others, with no witnesses, he began in a paper suit and eventually upgraded to real clothes before he left the city. There were no San Francisco newspaper articles written about him at the start. In fact, it wasn't until he arrived in Pennsylvania, about four months later, that anyone noticed him. He likely never lived in California and actually started his adventure in Pittsburgh. In the Allegheny Mountains, Boynton said that he used a long railroad tunnel after receiving information that no train would be coming. He was feeling his way along one side of the tunnel when his body was caught by the steps of a special train which whizzed past and flung him against a huge boulder near the track. He lay stunned, but recovered and crawled through the tunnel. On the other side, a railroad official tended a nasty wound on his head and then placed him under arrest, thinking he didn't receive permission to use the tunnel. In New York City, a friend paid his passage to Liverpool, England on a steamer that left in February 1898. He started walking around England and in April went to Ireland and walked there too. He said he needed to travel 40,000 miles on foot and said falsely that he had already been around the world four times and visited every country known to travelers. In Boynton's credit, his journey in Great Britain went according to his stated plans set months earlier and were backed up by numerous reports in England newspapers. Boynton walked a zigzag route through England. While in Edinburgh, Scotland, he married a Scottish woman, and they only spent one day together as a married couple. News about Boynton was silent about his travels from there, but he told some fantastic tales. Boynton next steamed to Portugal and made it across the country to the Spanish border. Strangely, Boynton, an American, wanted to walk in Spain just as the Spanish-American War was concluding. He was denied entrance into Spain by border guards, but that night he crawled across the border on his stomach and was spotted by a sentry who opened fire. He made a run for it, successfully getting away, and spent the night under an olive tree. In his traveling kit, he carried several changes of underclothing, a sword stick with a Toledo blade, and an automatic pistol. Soon he was given a donkey to carry his things. He claimed to walk a zigzag route through Spain, and for much of it with two American flags on his back. At several towns, I was arrested as a spy, and my passport was taken away after one day. At one town, a Spanish fisherman didn't like the flags on his back and threw a knife at him. It did not hit me, but in return I threw a stone and hit him in the head. I cleared out after that as soon as possible. At Cartagena, I was attacked by a mob and almost killed. I used my revolver to good advantage and kept the crowd at bay until I made my escape. Boynton said Spaniards tried to poison him along the way. Their plan was to get him to eat many Indian figs and then drink a certain wine which would cause a dangerous chemical composition of poison. I ate my fill of the fruit, but when the wine was passed, I refused it. The natives were highly indignant of my refusal to partake. 
Boynton said he was once with an Austrian consul in a cafe. The room was crowded with Spanish officers. They, knowing the consul, asked for an introduction to me. They drank together, and one of the men put poison in Boynton's glass. I did not feel the effects of the drug until I reached my hotel. I was then deathly sick. He forced himself to vomit and eventually recovered <laughs> and went on to Madrid. The day I left Madrid, I had to pass in front of 20,000 Spanish troops. I had the two American flags draped about my body. I thought sure I had done my last walking, but instead of being killed, I was cheered along the route. He finally neared the French border. I had just arrived at Jaca, Spain, when a Spaniard accosted me and slapped me on the back and said, those colors of the Yankee are damn bad in Spain. They soon started to rustle. I shoved him away so as I could get my sword out of my case. But he came at me again with a knife and I shoved my cane at him. He grabbed it and gave a quick jerk and I released the sword. He came again and I struck him in the stomach and he toppled over the bridge down an embankment to the stones below. I did not stop to see whether he died, but got out of town as soon as possible. I later found out I had killed him. He quickly crossed over the nearby border into France, just in time, because Spanish soldiers arrived one hour later at the border to arrest him for murder. Later that month, word arrived that Boynton nearly lost his life in the Pyrenees Mountains. When in the mountains, in darkness, he stepped into a chasm and fell from a considerable height. The little donkey bearing the luggage and provisions stopped just on the verge of the precipice. A donkey driver, who passed the place shortly afterward, chanced to hear Boynton's groans and rescued him. Unfortunately, he suffered from terrible frostbitten toes because he had been walking in Spanish sandals ever since his boots had been stolen. Boynton returned to England for medical help. He said he had to borrow $50 to make the trip and used that violation of his wager as an excuse to stop his trip. I'm a scoundrel. After being married for only eight months, he filed for divorce, admitted that he had often been unfaithful, and said that he intended to return to the United States to pursue mining in Colorado. He had no desire to bring his wife with him. Eventually, his marriage was dissolved. By June 1899, he was back in New York City. He began a walk across America and back, giving lectures along the way, telling his fantastic tales, but quit in Missouri. Boynton went on to build his fame and planned an expedition to the North Pole by means of an airship and an expedition to explore South America. Neither schemes took place. He dodged hotel bills and eventually was arrested and spent time in prison. For the last 20 years of his life, he lived in San Francisco. He listed his occupation as military advisor. He died around 1945, alone and was largely forgotten. Stay tuned to the next episode when the walks around the world get even more bizarre. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs>